The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. So hi, everybody, and welcome back to the uh, Early Modern Seminar hosted by the Long Room Hub. Um, Today, we're delighted to welcome Andrew Snedden from Ulster University, who's a lecturer in history. Um, Andrew is president of the Ulster Society for Irish Historical Studies, and his third monograph, Witchcraft and Magic in Ireland, was published by Palgrave. Um, He's published his most recent articles on witchcraft and magic in Irish historical studies, historical journal and cultural and social history. And he's currently writing two books for Cambridge University Press, one on representing magic in modern Ireland and one on disability and magic in early modern Britain and America, as well as editing a collection for Bloomsbury on the cultural history of magic in Enlightenment Europe. And today's paper, um, this is very interesting and different to, to the usual, I think, but this one looks at micro histories of individual early modern witchcraft trials within the historiography of witchcraft and the role that they can play in creative public history, dark heritage and tourism. And this draws on his really fascinating work um, that was taking the story of the Isla McGee witch trial um, of 1711 to to wider audiences. So he's done this through an enormous variety of means, um, public lectures, talks, tours, radio, TV programmes, Andrew was the historical consultant for a new six-part series that will air in spring on TG4, and that had an episode on this um, Isla McGee witch trial, but also um, really innovative new means of of transmission. So a graphic novel, computer game, musical score, and an interactive website. So he's going to talk about these, the significance of this today, um, and I'll hand over for him to talk about microhistory, creative, collaborative, public history, and early modern witch trials. And as usual, um, questions in the Q&A um, as you go along and afterwards. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks very much, Susan. Thank you um, for um, <clears throat> inviting me along. I can trust you can see my screen now. That's great. Okay, so my talk today deals with Irish witchcraft but it's more focused on how historians, we take our research to wider audiences and the benefits and the challenges that doing this actually um, we face. This, as you know, is harder sometimes for early modernists, you know. It's, hard, it's easier sometimes for modern historians, especially during um, the decade of centenaries to take our research to wider audience. There's more public buy-in. And the oxygen, you know, cultural oxygen for um, taking our our work further afield is sometimes uh, limited. So what I want to do is take you on a kind of reflective journey over the last 10 years or so on my experience of conducting public history and relating to the trial, but also discussing what my findings of the research as a go. And it's obviously the trial of the LMG witches in County Antrim and spring and summer. Assizes 1711. So along the way, I want to make some points about what I've learned about writing impactful history and also about disseminating my research to different groups and just some of the projects that Susan talked about there. But this is what I would suggest is creative collaborative public history, where you went from historian um, almost to co-producer. But first, a snapshot of the trial 
of the LME witches tell you what happened. Sorry if you heard this one before. <laughs> it starts in February 1711 and Ayla McGee. And that's Andrew, a can I can I jump in for one second? So sorry, but people can see you, but not your screen. Can you not see my screen? All yeah, right. just see if you can start the PowerPoint again. Sorry for interrupting. No, I thanks. And I kept going, you know. All right. Brilliant. Thank you. That's that's working now. I don't think we actually missed anything there, so, you know, you can maybe edit this out. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, it starts in, you know, you know, February 1711, and it's in Isla which is an eight-mile-long peninsula just, at, you know, in east coast of County Antrim. And it contained 300 people of Presbyterian um, religion and of Scots heritage or... Um, descent. And it all starts when Anne Haltridge, who is an elderly widow of the local minister, Reverend John Haltridge, dies suddenly, okay, after months of demonic attack by a demonic presence in the house that takes the form of a small boy with a ponytail, horrified, and it attacks uh, no head house where she lives. And so apparitions, objects moving, things crawling over her body, you know, stones getting hurled by unseen hands, Curtains opening and shutting, that's what that was. <laughs> um, and then she dies with a stabbing pain in the back. And this today would be probably, by some people anyway, seen as poltergeist activity, but it was definitely in the understanding of the day, demonic obsession. It was demonic activity associated with the prelude to a demonic possession or entering the body. So local people immediately thought witchcraft, you know, something's not he uh, right here, but they didn't identify anybody to blame for it. But six days after the funeral, Mary Dunbar, an educated, pretty gentlewoman of 18 from uh, nearby Castlereagh in County Antrim, arrives at No Head House. And she... Um, almost immediately finds in one of the rooms at the bit of the front uh, a knotted apron containing the bonnet of Anne Haltridge who has died and unties it. Everybody tells her not to. She unties it anyway. It's like a classic horror movie moment um, because they're convinced it's bewitched. And No Head House is wrecked once more by this supernatural disturbances and Dunbar herself begins to become demonically possessed. Convulsions, um, shaking fits, vomiting household objects, levitation, adversion to the Bible or anything holy, the, the classics and, you know, and the develop as it goes along. And during the next month, Dunbar, you know, doesn't blame the devil directly. She blames eight Presbyterian women of witchcraft, claiming they attacked her in spectral form and summoned demons to possess her body. The women concerned were examined, tested, I can talk about that later, and imprisoned by Anglican Whig Mayor of nearby Carrick Fergus, Edward Clements. And he was acting in the role as a, a GP. Clements then bound the accused over to appear at the spring session of the Criminal Court, the main criminal court, the County Assizes, held at Carrick Fergus on the uh, Northeast Circuit. But Mary's uh, Dunbar's symptoms continued up to the day of her trial and conveniently deprived her of speech she couldn't uh, testify. So they used her um, uh, depositions, which we have. And despite pleading not guilty on the 31st of March, an eight-hour trial, which is unusual, 
Eight women were convicted under the 1586 Irish Witchcraft Act of a first offence using um, witchcraft, sentenced to a year imprisonments and four stints for six hours each, and the pillory in Calic Fergus uh, in Market Day. And there's a reimagining of the pillory, but no mention of the witches there today. But unlike many demoniacs or um, demonic possessed persons, there was no uh, improvement in her health. Uh, imprisonment of those concerned or execution was meant to stop it, but it didn't. So why was she still affected? Well, she claimed that two women who were never identified and William Seller was spectrally attacking her. Seller was the hard drinking husband and father of two of the convicted women earlier. <clears throat> so, just after the first trial, William Seller uh, resists arrest and absconds, but is caught and charged with bewitching um, Dunbar. But I later found out Dunbar died three weeks after the March trial. Thus, William would have been charged with uh, killing using magic, which carried the death penalty. We know that he was found guilty at the summer session of the Carrick Fergus Assizes on the 11th of September, 1711. In Scottish witchcraft trials, um, the 2,000 to 3,000 uh, executions are extrapolated almost, you know, uh, in a lot of cases and majority of cases from existing documents where the sentence is passed. But, you know, we don't really know if they were executed, but it's, ex it's extrapolated. So, and if we were to do this in the Isle McGee case, then under the 1586 Irish Witchcraft Act, Seller was executed for the murder uh, by means of witchcraft of Mary Dunbar. So it'd be the only witch, you know, perhaps that we know of who was executed, you know, Florence Newton and Cork is sometimes argued that as well, but there's probably less uh, evidence, you know, um, for making that assumption. So what was the road that led to my on-off 10-year relationship with LBE Witchcraft Trial. And this is conducted in the midst of loads of other research, you know, into Irish witchcraft and magic. Well, it all started on the 31st of March 2011, long time ago, when I released via Ulster University a press release. And that detailed my ongoing research, but made the point that the next day would be the 300-year anniversary of the LMG Witch Trial, which was passing, you know, by unnoticed in complete contrast to, you know, Salem in Massachusetts or even the Lancaster witch trial uh, the year before. And this press release opened the floodgate of interest in social media and local and national newspapers, radio and television. I, this level of uh, public interest in the trial, you know, kind of shocked me and it hadn't been matched by academics. The last summary was written in um, 1913 um, by St. John uh, D. Seymour, Irish Witchcraft and Demonology. And recent academic engagement was limited to two articles explaining the lack of witch trials by Remy Gillespie and Alvin Lapointe, as well as a case study by Mary McAuliffe on the 1661 court case. This was excellent work, all of it, but considering the ink spilled on Britain, America and Europe, there was obviously more to be said about this. So in the aftermath of this press release, I felt I had to write the history of the trial, and I had to do it now. Now, <laughs> at this point in time, I was contracted to write another book for Palgrave, and it was an overview that would become Witchcraft and Magic in Ireland, 
and it would be published a few years later. So starting a new book and with a new baby on the way uh, was madness. And I don't know if I would do it again this time. You know, I'm glad I did it, but it, it was a tall order at the time. So um, Possessed by the Devil then was actually designed from the start to be public facing. I wanted it to appeal to multiple audiences uh, by being accessible, engaging and readable, but not sacrificing archival explorations or fact-driven narratives associated with academic rigor and historical writing. Complex ideas and theories were explained in straightforward uh, language and endnote references were leaning heavily towards the primary source material. The book was structured as a narrative rather than thematically arranged and emphasis was laid on people and place. Its narrative structure in my mind when I was writing it was designed to mirror that of a good documentary made for television with explication and contextualization of the trial itself woven in and out of the storyteller. This reliance on primary source material was meant to be a wee bit different from kind of popular accounts of um, witchcraft uh, uh, trials and magical trials that had appeared in Ireland from the 1960s onwards. So the choice of the structure, the content, the pace, and the writing style on Possessed with the Devil thus formed an integral part of a creative process in my mind that aimed to make specific intellectual objectives but target wider audiences as I was doing it. A recent article um, by R. Bickers and others um, in History Workshop Journal in 2020 uh, called Creative Dislocation, an Experiment in Collaborative Historical Research, argued that it is important, I quote, to recognise historical work as innately creative, and that creativity informs the questions we ask, our ways of working with the archive, and our approach to writing. So it is a, a, intuitively creative, and I try to reflect that. But it was also conceived as a micro-history and that I'm reducing the scale of observation of the history of belief in witchcraft in Ireland to one trial. I'm also focusing on an intense study of documentary materials and I'm also using narrative as an analytical tool to explore the lives and the physical and the mental environments of the individuals involved in this. I was lucky, you know, really lucky that the 1711 trials were unusually well documented in terms of surviving uh, primary source material. You know, we all know the limits in early modernists in Ireland work under, especially when looking at criminal material. And so we had contemporary newspaper reports, we had pre-trial depositions, we had letters written by eyewitnesses detailing the day of the trial, and a 32-page pamphlet written in 1711 but not transcribed and published to the extent disappeared in the meantime, until 1822 by uh, local historian uh, Samuel McSkimmon. So in common with uh, many um, micro-histories then, the individuals involved were ordinary people, but then again, and this is a paradox of uh, micro-histories, they're not <laughs> as well, because they have to be exceptional. If they're not exceptional, they wouldn't get in trouble with the, you know, the authorities in the way they did. And we wouldn't know about them. We wouldn't have the documentary trail to follow. So there's a kind of paradox there. But micro-histories are acknowledged by historians as being particularly good at allowing an examination 
of the extent and the limits upon human agency and demonstrating the freedoms individuals may have beyond constraining normative and sorry, <laughs> prescriptive systems, okay? And this was certainly the case in the Ellen McGee trial, I think, which uncovered the agency and the resistance shown by the convicted witches in everyday life and in response to the witchcraft accusations laid against them. This is an aspect that was um, so often glossed over in 19th and 20th century gender representations, didn't fit with the image of the witch that they had in their mind, and, and it continued up to the present day. So the book's close-up shot of Irish witchcraft and from, and to a certain extent, problematized these long-shot examinations that I was just beginning to do, and so was Ronald Hutton. And our work positioned witchcraft belief in the early modern period in Ireland um, and belief itself. And we were saying that different communities believed in different witches and had different outcomes, meaning that the mass of the population didn't make accusations. And you know, even the ones in Protestant settler communities didn't go anywhere. But possessed by the double challenge this, it revealed that at least one prosecution was for a man, and that witchcraft prosecution was often highly politicized. Politicized, I can't say that one. <laughs> Don't get me to say prosentism either. Right, so the, the Ellen McGee witch trial was thus used as an oppositional tool in a period in a place, Northeast Antrim, of heightened political tensions between people affiliated to or committed supporters of Whig and Tory parties. Also linked the symptoms of possession, behaviour, and motivations um, at the demoniac at the centre of the case, Mary Dunbar, to witchcraft and demonic possession cases in Salem and Scotland, and some in England in the earlier um, 16th century. No, sorry, early 17th century, late 16th century, because you don't get demonic possession cases involving witchcraft in Scotland to the later. Um, 17th century, early 18th century. So in common with many demoniacs in these areas, demonic possession allowed Mary Dunbar to challenge constraints on her behaviour without consequences on her reputation or her family. You know, it allowed her in her own way to challenge gender norms. And in doing so, she became a chief performer in demonic drama of her own creation, which was based on well-established cultural scripts of demonic possession. And she changed this script as she went along in relation to the audience, you know, the people uh, of the community, local law enforcement and neighbours. In stark contrast, I also showed, right, and I think this is where the micro-history came in, that the women Dunbar accused of orchestrating her possession were regarded as believable witches because of their agency, their acts of resistance, and their general failure to meet patriarchal standards of womanhood, their poverty, their physical appearance, their behavior, and the bad reputation set them apart, and made them the type of women thought likely to be in the devil's service that were physically disabled. Uh, this led me on to my latest work. They were facially scarred, about burns or uh, smallpox. They were poor, dressed shabbily, they were dirty, um, they smoked tobacco, they drank strong alcohol, and some of them had reputations for bad behaviour in the local area, hinting at sex work. So they always well resisted 
our arrest and refused to cooperate with investigating uh, constables. And the clergy and, uh, and uh, the magistrates who interrogated them, you know, so there's resistance here. And furthermore, on the day of the trial, in front of the great and the good of the whole community, they denied that they, they had done it. They defended themselves with the limited means they had. And William Seller, the male witch, also fell considerably short of uh, standards of masculinity. He was neither a good husband or a father or upstanding male member of a godly community. He was not in control of his own body, which he should have been as a, a, a man. He drank alcohol to excess. He resisted authority by trying to abscond. And rather than controlling his family, rather than controlling his wife, he allowed them to become witches. So, you know, I moved this on a wee bit in a, a recent article for the Journal of Social and Cultural History. And I took the story further and I argued the belief in witchcraft remained part of popular culture and Ayle McGee up to the 20th century. Now, this formed part of a wider study that was in my book, Witchcraft and Magic in Ireland, and in an article in the Historical Journal with John Fulton. But what I argued in relation to Island McGee was that in a socially cohesive community in the 19th and 20th century, belief in witchcraft was actually shaped by the class, not by class and education, but by the sheer trauma and memory of the 1711 trial. Now this memory, this social memory was passed down by folklore and storytelling and transmitted intergenerationally and interfamilially, um, but also folk history. Uh, ensured that certain places such as the Rockin' Stone, which is in the middle of the, the slide there, were associated with the trial and it kept the idea alive of the trial. It was studiously avoided at night in the 19th century and it was said to have claw marks where Catherine McCallum and one of the witches were dragged off to court. Furthermore, I argued that, um, that writers and journalists also um, shaped the, the way that the trial was portrayed and witchcraft in general. By highlighting um, some aspects of the case and ignoring others and even making up some things, the Ayle McGee case um, serviced a number of ideological positions. It provided a convenient way to um, discuss Europe's witch hunting past, but distance Ireland from it by saying that Ayle McGee was an aberration. Um, it was an isolated, you know, um, incident that stained Ireland's exemplary record of immunity witch hunting, only a handful of trials. It was mostly explained away, the, the trial itself, and Irish public discourse in the 19th and the 20th century, in much the same way as historic witch trials were in middle and upper class Britain and America at the same time, as distasteful episodes born of popular superstition and elite bigotry and halted only by the rationalisation even, or the rationalism of the Enlightenment. It would become, as I was shown in a new book, even more gendered than politicised in a period of political crisis in Ireland in the late 19th and early 20th century. Although not contained in the original article and in the book that I'm going to say something about, I also found that fiction writers and dramatists in the early mid to 20th century dwell in the otherness of Ellen McGee, which they suggested explained the strong belief in witchcraft in Ellen McGee itself in the peninsula. 
And this is why the trial happened. It's a weird place. It's always been haunted. <laughs> and early in the century, writers also highlighted the victimhood of the convicted women, who, in contrast to the way I've just described them, were often portrayed as paragons of virtue, honesty, and piety to maintain the interpretive frameworks of witchcraft and to, you know, to be used as a, a way to, to gender witchcraft itself. So this was taken in many ways, uh, highly subjective descriptions of the characters. And this position would change somewhat in the late um, 20th and early um, 21st century as a whole new generation of, of creative writers grappled with it. And I, I talk about this in relation to Irish witchcraft and you know in the modern era and a bigger stage in, in a short book for um, Cambridge University Press representing magic. And I argue that Ireland didn't experience a disenchanted modernity where spiritual essences just dissipate with the enlightenment and scientific progress, nor a decline in magic either in the 18th and 19th century, and the beliefs, practices, and tradition concerning witchcraft and magic developed and adapted to modernity. They weren't killed off by modernity, and that allowed it to retain cultural currency well into the 20th century. You know? And this provided the backdrop for an explanation of how historic Irish witch trials and, and, and cases, including Alan McGee, but uh, all the others you can think of, uh, were represented by visual artists and antiquarians and journalists and dramatists and poets and historians and novelists between the late 18th and the 20th century. And this is demonstrated that this created a kind of, you know, an accepted narrative that we still grapple with today. There's no witchcraft in Ireland. And it glossed over and ignored or obscured the depth of belief in witchcraft, both in the past in contemporary society when they were writing. And as I said, they collectively gendered Irish witchcraft and created a myth of a disenchanted uh, modern island and reinforced uh, competing views as well of the past. So the public history phase of the project began um, after the launch of Possessed by the Devil in 2013. The launch, you know, I was lucky, was widely reported in Irish radio in Northern Ireland and in newspapers. And I think this part of the project straddled two different interpretations of what public history is and should be. Uh, between one where public history is based on the form and nature of transmission of historical knowledge to wider audiences, and another where the public participatory element is greater and all parties involved, including the historian, become agents of historical creation, of creating new interpretations. <clears throat> so dissemination of my historical research was conducted through talks and public lectures for heritage, educational and community groups, in, both in, in the Republic and Northern Ireland. And I also responded to requests from writers, directors and production companies to work with them in movie scripts and radio and television and relating to the Elmagy witches. Anybody who's done this sort of stuff, most of it because of budgets and the way um, pitches work didn't go anywhere, you know. Um, but both uh, 
approaches took my historical research to larger audiences. But I think the work with the TV in particular was inherently, inherently collaborative. And it allowed producers and directors to create their own interpretations. And I'll say more about this in a minute. Most of the projects arose after individuals and groups had read or very least became aware of Possessed by the Devil. So they were, it was reactive in a lot of cases, sometimes proactive, but reactive. And I think the impact of the book, you know, can be partly explained by the fact that microhistory works really well in public history because there is a strong public interest in the intimate histories of ordinary people, you know, um, alongside elites. And this is why heritage sites and often tell the story of individuals or a single family or event or train. It's a way to connect people with heritage through individual narrative. So in the years after the publication of Possessed by the Devil, when I asked to talk about the Elmie Witches, I prioritised events according to their ability to engage with wider audiences. This meant uh, prioritising talks and workshops given that community-based events, local libraries and women's groups over papers presented at academic conferences and seminars. Good for your career. I don't know that. It's up to you to decide. But I thought it was the right thing to do. Although I did do one for Trinity College Dublin this seminar in 2015. <laughs> I do remember that. At community events, the 1711 case was used as a launching point to discuss local history, folklore and issues affecting present-day Northern Ireland. Equality, inclusion, division, tolerance, gender violence. It's all there in there in, in, in witchcraft trials. Also worked with the you know, heritage and art sector, including Carrie Ferguson Museum and the Public Record Office of Modern Ireland in Belfast, where I, I hosted a number of events and workshops relating to the McGee trials and Irish witchcraft. This kind of re reorientated uh, in a way their public engagement, you know, the, the way that they actually took history that was in their archives forward, because it was a few things in there as well, relating to, to witchcraft um, and the supernatural, and they hadn't done that before. So meanwhile, between um, 2016 and 2019, I collaborated with Seedhead Arts in Belfast, which was a consultancy, events management and training service. Um, in Northern Ireland to develop new ways of reaching more diverse audiences, right? Um, via one particular venue, the Black Box in Belfast. And uh, together in these three years, we hosted nine public lectures on Elmagy Witches and Witchcraft uh, to around about 1,400 people, um, and it was ticketed. And public demand was just, you know, momentous. Uh, every lecture was sold out. You know, and within a matter of hours sometimes, you know, it was beating quite known com comedians and bands. It was really weird and it was terrifying going on stage to all these people drinking cider and you're there to talk about history, you know. I got over it by the eighth one, right? <laughs> it was terrifying, but it worked really well. People were really engaged. But, it, you know, it wasn't easy. And sometimes these things, putting yourself out there, aren't easy, you know. The unexpected expected uh, public response revealed the extent of the public appetite in Ireland for the knowledge of dark history or dark heritage. 
where it's situated around, uh, you know, um, traumatic, traumatic events. And there's undoubtedly a large market for dark heritage and tourism in Ireland, but this is largely catered for by brick and mortar um, attractions from prisons and castles to monuments and museums. And Gillian uh, O'Brien in her brilliant book attributes the allure of dark tourism and dark heritage to the fact that I quote, Irish history is full of darkness. And perhaps it's this history that encourages a fascination with the morbid, the melancholic, the miserable, the maudlin, so many M words. However, I quote again, she, um, she locates this fascination in Irish culture and the national psyche. And as I said, I'll quote again, the Irish do have a perverse attraction to nurturing their injuries. We don't need to have experienced terrible events. We just need to have heard about them to have absorbed some of the outrage from the past. I would also add in Northern Ireland, um, there was a novelty aspect to this dark heritage, to the Isle McGee witches. This was the first time that many people were hearing about this. You know, it was the first time that maybe they hadn't heard much about social history, more concerned with political history. And it's the first time we're hearing about the trial. There just hadn't been much said about the Elmagy witches. I know we were saying in the past it was represented in culture, but you know, um, at the turn of the 20th century, you know, the 21st century, there wasn't much there. There's no plaques, still isn't, no signage, no exhibitions, and I'm trying to change this. Um, and even when novelist Martina Devlin in 2015 attempted to have the women. Uh, just the women, pardoned and commemorated, uh, it created controversy um, as a local uh, councillor opposed uh, the plans on the grounds he didn't want to encourage uh, devil worship. Now, this can be put within a religious um, context, but it can also be like stretched right back to the 70s when the satanic panic, I think, took over Northern Ireland and you can ask me about this in the questions if you, if, if you want. So there's a longer lineage of this, actually, than, than it seems apparent at the time. So between 2013 and 2021, along with hosting workshops and talks, I worked um, as consultant and contributor on a number of radio programmes dedicated to the trial. Um, I also collaborated with uh, production companies as I said, to pitch films and television programmes to various funders and broadcasters. This drew in the work in both books, the one you see on the screen, and the Ellen McGee trial, as well as some articles I wrote in between as well. These collaborations in common with the public talks were nearly always, on every occasion, after producers, screenwriters or directors had read Possessed by the Devil or one of my other articles or something about it in the media. So production companies told me, you know, and directors, when they read the book, it was because the narrative element was so strong in the book and because it was already structured like a documentary that they felt that they could adapt it, you know. And so it's design as creative microhistory then. Not brought it to a wider audience, but I think it made it easier to adapt it as well for wider consumption, you know.
Some um, collaborations went nowhere, <laughs> as they often do, uh, and they're time-consuming um, as well. But some led to consultancy and on-screen uh, contributions um, to productions for broadcasters in Britain, Northern Ireland, and, and in the Republic. These programmes were variously targeted at Ulster Scots and English and Irish speakers, and were often the first time the producer or broadcaster had even looked at witchcraft. So in this way, broadcasters are able to capture new and culturally and linguistically diverse audiences with their own interpretation of which is essentially a diaspora story of a Scots community under pressure in the north of Ireland and Ulster. So in practice, along with on-screen appearances, the collaborations involved ensured historical accuracy of the scripts as much as could, shooting locations, locating and interpreting original documents to be used on screen and by researchers and the directors. So I think a balance was struck between the need to produce entertaining and interesting television and historical accuracy, and that's hard to maintain because you don't have control of these things a lot of the time. And, you know, interpretation that is based on uh, and primary evidence. So I think one of the last projects I worked on in, in TV, a big one, tipped the balance further in favour of this idea of co-production and collaboration, where you're actually creating something that's new, you know, or, or people are using your historical research to encourage and to help other people um, to produce their own creative interpretations, you know, and I can't believe it, but it started in 2016 and it lasted up to 2022. I worked as a historical consultant for Lagan Media Productions to produce a six-part Irish language series on TG4 to produce a new nuanced and broad in terms of chronology and actually the themes covered and examination of Irish witchcraft. I was closely involved in the series, The Devil's Inner, in translation, from the pitch to the post-production. And many of the episodes were based on, you know, on my research. You can see them, you know, um, including those in the Neil McGee trials, Mary Butters, and the extrajudicial killing that I argued anyway, of a witch in Antrim town, County Antrim, 1698. But the series, most importantly, reflects the creative output and input of the director, the producer, and the on-screen contributors, the academics and the folklorists. And so this together provides a reinterpretation of which child in Ireland and, and you know, places them in a wider context of gender relationships and ancient Gaelic-Irish cosmology and mythology and folklore. I'm not going to go too much into detail because it's currently on screen now, right? You know, I'm not going to give you any spoilers. But it's stunningly, it's stunningly visual and beautifully shot, and I think it's worth a watch. Historians, I think, are natural control freaks, maybe too much time spent on their own, and their books and archives and on projects on their own. But when engaging in projects like this, you have to relinquish some control and what the final product will look like. And say to yourself, it's okay to have multiple interpretations out there. And it's vital, actually, and it's healthy to have public history actually reflect these viewpoints 
whether they're fully or partially created by academic historians. Again, going back to that great article by uh, Bickers uh, and others in 2020, he correctly argued against the boundary policing by historians, journalists, and cultural commentators around the borders of popular and academic history, creative nonfiction, and historical fiction. He argued that this need to police the boundaries is often a consequence of unease and anxiety with, I quote, the explicit language and methods of creativity used by writers and artists. But as we've already said, historical writing, you, know, you might completely disagree with me here, is implicitly and sometimes explicitly a creative process in the way that we do it and the choices we make. So helping others to produce their own uh, historical interpretation, of course, has its limits. Cultural products built on myths that have no use for historical research or ignores it completely, or which promulgate misinformation or hate, are not only damaging to humanity, but to the subject of history and the legacy of the people involved in the trials. Now, this is real people, as we're always dealing with, with names and histories and you know you have to be wary of that as well and I wouldn't be involved in any projects that I thought you know did damage in this way so there are limits to you know what, what you should or could be involved in I think my collaborative role um, in creative public history came full tilt with uh, my current project with Dr Victoria McCullum of Cinematic Arts in UU and this is the Witches of Island McGee 1711 project. And it works with um, students in a number of areas, but also academics in UU, Helen Jackson, Sabrina Minter, and Brian Coyle, uh, and, um, and Adam Melvin, uh, from game design, cinematic arts, interactive media and history. We also worked you know, in the initial stages when we went for initial funding with Elizabeth Keeley of UCC. So this is where I actually went from disseminating or consulting on historical research to actively using creative writing and new technologies to explore which trials and LMG witches in particular. And we drafted a number of aims, you know, and, and Dr. Victoria McCall wrote these up for, for our big launch next week. Okay. Um, and what we, we drafted was we wanted to open up the public neglected Irish social and cultural history to deepen public understanding about the witchcraft trials, things that we was already doing, arguably. But more novelly, to make research finding tools and sources more accessible to non-academic readers. To explore, examine and employ innovative approaches to academic and user engagement. To shorten the distance between cultural spaces and visitors an intangible cultural heritage like this. Noah Head House is still there, but somebody lives in it. There is, the, you know, in, on the screen, I don't know if you've noticed, there's the rocking stone. <laughs> the students um, who were amazing, who did the landing page for the, the, uh, the, the website, which you can see here, we we'll see a wee bit more on that in a minute, you know, took this photograph, you know, and I was up there having to do 3D modeling stuff and nearly fell off the edge. But that's the rocking stone I was talking about earlier. It's still there. So that's what I'm saying, you know, this is a lot of it is there's some cultural uh, 
tangible cultural heritage, but it's, it's largely intangible. So I also wanted to provide, you know, we also wanted to provide and enhance and support public and community ownership and engagement with us. And this is something that I started off, you know, right at the beginning, you know, and this does it really well, I think. So the project, um, Lyle McGee, which is 1711, has a main output. And it's an online digital um, toolkit, the website. You just saw the landing page. I'm not going to give you it right now because it's being launched next week, the 31st of March, the 111th anniversary of the trial. And the Digital Toolkit website is comprised of a number of elements. The history element, a graphic novel, an original score, a choice-driven series game, and a virtual reality experience. You can, there's still tickets available, I think, at Prony, and it's on Zoom if you want to come to the launch. The rest of the, the elements there will be delivered during the year and a number of deliverables. So the first is the element allows the user to explore the history of a trial through academic articles, images, maps, television, radio, interviews, transcripts of the original documents as much as I can get, right? These documents will be digitized and transcribed with a grant from the UU Impact and Research Fund. I worked, you know, I had an impact case study there and they're developing further impact for me in, in Victoria. So what we also did, Victoria McCollum, myself, and a graphic artist, David Campbell, are writing a graphic novel based on the McGee Witches. You know, you can see on this slide some examples that show the kind of complex process. I didn't realise it's I've read comics, but I didn't know how hard that was to write one. Um, and it starts with the storyline, which is really hard as a story to cram the complexity of a book into a number of pages. And we also had to decide on themes, the tone of the piece, and the point of view taken in the narration, also as the historian's trying to maintain historical accuracy, despite having to conflate and contract. So this meant coming up with, and you can see in the right-hand side, storyboarding and thumbnails, character sketches, as you can see on the left-hand side, um, and pencil drafts, you can see, of the actual, you know, um, the pages of, of the novel. Also, you can see in the very bottom left-hand side, the cover. And the cover had to be done as well, you know, and David is an amazing artist, as you can see. All the while, we're trying to make it readable, you know, and um, this is a truly collaborative endeavour, and from start to finish, drawing all our strengths and our interests, and I think it's very cinematic, not least because, I mean, that is what um, Victoria does She's a, a lecturer in cinematic arts. But we also commissioned, you know, um, an original score that orchestrates the noises associated with an outbreak of demonic possession in Eileen McGee. And this score features abstract field recordings and, and um, instruments that were taken in Eileen McGee and implied in landscape as active and observing and waiting. It has been developed by Adam Melvin, lecturer in music at UU. We also, and early modernists don't panic. This is a work in progress. And, you know, uh, this is not early modern, like early modern houses in early McGee, or in fact dress, so don't panic. <laughs> um, and this is where the, the, the historian comes in. 
and this is the collaborative aspect, trying to get, you know, digital assets to match the period, as we said, you know, uh, or said before the talk, we're not rock star games, you know, we have limited means and budgets and we have coding, modeling and digital art limitations, you know, due to resources. This is where as you have to find a possible balance between historical accuracy, gameplay and trying to address key themes and issues. And so this is a choice driven game in which you play the role of a witch hunter um, or ad hoc witch hunter. Whether you lead with evidence or empathy or convict suspects for in-game rewards or bribes is entirely up to you. Um, and this is a blurb written Victoria. Grim yet affecting, this is nerve-wracking, sleuthing game with relentless pacing and dozens of compelling characters. It will present you with constant moral choices about what to do when confronted with a witchcraft accusation. So that was the video game. And lastly, is the virtual reality experience. Now, I can't show you that. It's only just been modelled um, by Centurio, a company uh, who does that. But, you know, it, it, there was an awful lot of historical research in it and to, to bring it. This will be a seated VR experience accessed via headset like Oculus. It'll be a completely disorientating, immersive experience, and it's going to draw, it's going to frighten you. It's going to work within a 3D modelled environment and you're going to explain what it's like, or experience what it's like to be feel bewitched and have accused of witchcraft. So both sides of the coin. So you will take the POV of the accuser and the accused, you know. You'll interact with objects and react to narration and voices recorded by actors and, and our students on, on, on the drama course. Again, all, all this was all done with the expertise of Victoria and with an eerie soundscape provided by Adam Melvin again. So you'll be entering this bewitched landscape situation at the Rockstone again, <laughs> um, which is going to be 3D modelled, via a training room where you can access digital assets that will tell you the history of the trial. So that's where, full circle, you know. Um, did I think I'd be here 10 years later still doing it? Neil McGee, no, I didn't. I got a arm, it's taking me in you know, uh, places I never thought I'd go uh, and drawing and stuff I enjoy. So there you have it. Well, so I was just making three points and I'll just finish off now with the three main points. So the first one was that the way we write and frame our histories are important if we want them to have wider appeal and creative micro history, I think, provide a great basis for public history. It's also um, the way that many historians of you look in Twitter of witchcraft are going and they're suggesting that the great uncharted part of early much modern witch trials, especially in Britain uh, and maybe in America, are micro histories of specific events or specific trials or small clusters of trials. They've been written by Malcolm Gaskell, um, you know, Marion Gibson, etc. etc. As historians, we've explored the larger narratives of what caused the witch trials and how and why they declined, from social tensions to judicial scepticism to gender to emotions to political and economic crisis. But to get to the heart of the complexity of a witch trial, I think, to get the, the complexity of accusations and prosecution and the, the legal process, you need to look at specific instances of witchcraft in individual trials. I think this is where assumptions and explanatory mechanisms 
sometimes met in that it was almost made at a regional, national or international level can be tested. Shared trends and themes and issues, of course, run through the witch hunts. Of course they do, especially those happening in specific legal contexts and specific geographical areas or even cultural frameworks or contexts. But I think every trial is unique and microhistory brings this out. Secondly, we need to go beyond just research dissemination if we want to engage with the wider public. You know, and I might upset somebody or some people with this, but I think the days of writing an academic article or book and then firing it to your pals, right, is over. You know, and it should be, we, we should be public facing, we should make it relevant, we don't have to, you know, be presentist or whatever, but we, we, we do need to engage. This is no dumbing down, it's not patronising. It's simply finding new ways of communicating and research. And I think in this talk, uh, I've discussed a number of ways of doing this, doing talks and workshops with community groups and using history to talk about contemporary issues, certainly one way, you know, I mean, to, to, to do it. And, and certain historical subjects obviously lend themselves more than others. More tricky perhaps is engaging with the media as this is still, for the most part, with historians, unless you know, later on in careers, perhaps, where it's reactive when you're waiting for them to come to you. For example, how do you find a production company to pitch to, especially when you're an early career researcher? But once more, you could argue that designing your research outputs to be accessible might help with this. And thirdly, we can all shape the way our research topic is, is represented, perhaps and culture becoming co-producers and protectioners in their own right. Write the novel, historical novel, if you want to. Draw on what you know and what you enjoy to do this. I, I don't know about podcasts, right? I don't listen to them. I don't like them. I've listened to a couple of folklore and ghosts. They are good. But my, my, my partner, my wife, uh, Dr. Leanne McCormick, loves them. And with her project lead, uh, Dr. Lane Farrell produced a very successful one, Bad Bridget. They knew instinctively how the format worked and what they wanted from it. And I think it showed, but I'm biased. I think it's excellent. I've played video games all my life. I love comics and I love films. And so, although no expert, I knew what I wanted. I knew some of the language and I knew how to approach it. And another thing is to be inter- and multidisciplinary, getting together with people in other disciplines if you want public face in history. And you never know where this collaboration will take you. And to do this, sometimes we have to leave some of our baggage as historians behind, you know, um, and we shouldn't see perhaps a role as placing the boundaries of the historical discipline by excluding certain creative representations. We can use our research and knowledge of documents to create new interpretations of the past and help others to do the same. There's room out there for multiple viewpoints, I think, in historical interpretations. Thanks for listening. Hi. Oh, that was that was so interesting, Andrew. I've got like pages of, of questions here. I'm just gonna wait for everybody um put your questions in the Q&A um, and they're all starting to pop pop in here now. While, while I'm just waiting for some questions to um, arrive, can, can I ask Andrew that, because what you said at the end was just really interesting about 
So it's about public facing and making research available to the public, but also about connecting with other disciplines. And is that part of the problem that, you know, when we talk, talk about video games and film, we think about public interaction, but these are academic disciplines as well that we just don't collaborate with. So we could easily link up with film schools and build those into our research projects and, and multimedia now, but we don't do that. And is it because we don't prioritize those kinds of outputs the same way we do articles and stuff like that? And how should we get around that problem? Absolutely, to both. Um, we do not, uh, you know, uh, prioritize that over, you know, it's the older thing, you have to have the book, you have to have mm. the articles, and, and of course, and in, and as I've shown, you know, I mean, you, you do have to have the research outputs there as well, and that's a hard bit to take it forward. Otherwise, you could be, you know, getting yourself into something you don't really know much about, and We've all been asked to be on a program about something, and you think, then you think, actually, I don't know anything about that, you know. So, um, and I know some people don't have that that problem, but you know, um, but yeah, absolutely. I, I I think that we need to think about these outputs as almost as good as as that. Now, in the UK, we have the REF, mm. uh, the Research Excellence Framework, and this measures both research impact and it measures um, research outputs as well. So my research impact, you know, um, was uh, put in for, for history. You know, I did a sole impact case study on a lot of the stuff here and this stuff will be going forward. So it is built into the research outputs and what they've actually done in the REF as well, they have uh, over this five or the seven year census, they've reduced the amount of outputs that they, you're expected to have. So it used to be four books and articles. Um, and now it's 2.5, but because our department is very prolific, only one out of my nine went in, you know, um, or one or two, I think. And uh, that's that, that's good. So I, I, I think that in, in the UK system, it's being addressed. Mm. That's good. Okay. I'll start with some of these. So um Audrey McCready has a question and she said, Did you find amongst the broad public interest that the story triggered any discussion on misogyny? Absolutely with women's groups, you know. I mean, um, and you know, what type of, you know, I mean, these there's a load, load of explanations I give in the book for why that these people were uh, accused of witchcraft and why they were believed. Uh, but Definitely, I mean, the fact that the, the challenge accepted standards of womanhood, you know, and at, at the time I was writing that, and I don't think I'm misrepresenting this, but I think there was a gender divide between male historians of witchcraft and, uh, and women historians of witchcraft, and male historians were less likely to, to talk about gender, and I think that that's changing. And to me, just looking at this, and that's what we're saying, finding different explanations within each trial, that the one size fits all explanation doesn't work all the time. That I saw straight away that this was a bit gender. It was a bit misogyny. You know, it's not always that is, but that that was definitely a main theme in that. And absolutely, when I'm talking about it, that's what comes out. And feelings where, you know, you you people say, oh, I would have been accused of witchcraft, you know, and then some things that's not the case. But then you think, well, maybe you know, in certain circumstances, you would have challenged norms and gender norms. And, and, and this applies to men as well, because gender research has shown that not all men are inheritors of, you know, patriarchal rewards, 
either then or now. Um, so Georgina Largi um, says, great paper, Andrew. I'm just wondering, could you speak about any real examples of contestation around the interpretation of evidence or the narrative itself, either with the public at the various sites of presentation or with the creative collaborators in the media um, that you had, and how might that have been resolved? Um, well, I mean, to be honest, you know, people are are usually quite open. You know, when 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 you say, well, actually, you know, it wasn't they weren't, you know, witches weren't midwives. You know, or or you know, coming from maybe popular perceptions of witchcraft, and 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 they genuinely um, want to learn. Now, sometimes, I mean, you know, I've been at public talks, and you know, um, people have disagreed with my interpretation of it. You know, uh, based on you know um, the religion or, or or you know or their culture. And that's fine, you know. I mean, you, you just you, you let that go. But when you're in the collaborative, um, you know, in, in endeavors, most of the time, you know, when you give people, you know, you know what you know that they, they take it on board. Sometimes they don't, but that's that's fine. Now, if if it came to it where I was really dissatisfied with, you know, and um, and the way it was going, you know, I I would, you know, um pull out but it never really happened you know um I, I don't think um people were very you know um very you know kind you know uh, uh, and understanding you know maybe it's just my experience I think Graham, Graham Murdoch had a question it's quite similar um have you encountered any opposition from folks in Isla McGee to your work um and then also with Nicola Sturgeon's posthumous apology for all those accused convicted vilified or executed under the witchcraft act um, first, what do you make of that and any interest in Stormont? Right. Um, actually, people in Island McGee come up to me at the end of the trial, right? And, you know, the, trial, <laughs> the end of the, you know, the, the, the public lecture, right? And they would say, this is amazing. We want more. Why have we not got something in Island McGee that tells you that? There's one, you know, and and then and, you know the, the public are quite informed. They, they told me, yeah, there is one thing in Browns Bay and Island McGee, and it's two lines on a sign, and it's actually got factual factual inaccuracies in it. You know, so they were really, you know, the people I've met are really, you know, um, you know, supportive of it. Now I have had a couple of people, uh, you know, from wider environs who said, you know, I shouldn't be dabbling and. and witchcraft and I shouldn't be engaging with this stuff and, and, and that and that's fine but mostly supportive and telling me more importantly and this is why I was you know was working you know with, um, with Liz as well was that there's historical um, uh, there's oral history to be done out there you know and people would tell me what their beliefs were growing up in the 1950s, what their experience of living in Isle McGee, how they learned about the trial, you know. Um, Nicholas Sturgeon's posthumous apology to the accused witches, incredibly important, right? So there's only a handful of witch trials in Ireland, right? Um, there's, there was 4,000 in Scotland. That was 12 times, you know, um, worse than uh, England, which was 500 proportionally. Um, population-wise, and five times worse than the European average, you know, I mean, Salem, 
19 people were executed, 38 in the whole of American history. Uh, you know, one weekend in Perth, uh, 18 people were put to death and we don't know anything about them. I didn't learn, I'm Scottish, as you can probably tell, I didn't learn about um, Scottish witches, didn't know about Scottish witchcraft. I'd heard of Salem, you know, and so to bring this posthumous apology, whether you agree with posthumous apologies or not, brought it to public attention. People says, actually, we have a wisp hunting past and everywhere in the central belt and some places up north were affected by this and very badly. And, you know, um, the implications of the 80% of, you know, witches who were women is, you know, um, it, it, it's terrible, you know. Um, and as I said, you know, I've, I've not heard anything from <laughs> Stormont. I've not contacted my phone yet. <laughs> there are, yeah, I'm not sitting at the minute, which doesn't help. But um, I think there's perception and how bad the witch hunts were that was driving this as well. And there's also a call at the same time to pardon the witches as well in, in Scotland. Um, David Deneen um, asks, what role did race play in witchcraft? Is the lacking thread that combined the different sectors emotional intelligence? Um, I, I'm not. I'm, I'm not quite sure how you answer that one, and I'm mm. looking at what we mean by by race. Um, I think uh, you know uh, that's been brought out, you know, in recent studies, uh, and um, uh, and you know Bermuda and other colonial places in America, you know, and their relationship selling with Native Americans, for example, you know, um, and. I think that's an aspect of race and uh, colonialism that is just beginning to be explored as well within witchcraft studies. Um, another another attendee, you said early on that you're possessed by the devil book is written in accessible language without long footnotes. How important do you think it is for academic books and talks to use accessible language? At times I find academic talks can lean in language that is not typically used in public life. That's a question about the balance, isn't it, between academic and sort of outreach? Where, where is that? It's the, it's the holy grail, isn't it, to write accessibly? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, um, it's the sentences you use as well. You know, um, it's your paragraph construction as well. Um, you know, not using jargon. And sometimes very complex theories can be explained you know, simply, but you have to know them. And sometimes, you know, some people just don't know the theories that they're talking about and, and sometimes hide it in opaque language, you know. We all know that that happens sometimes, you know. And so it's hard to, to, to do it, you know, um, and, and, and it's hard to, to write in a narrative, but still have exposition and make it a micro history and make a big point about witchcraft. So it, it is very hard. And in academic talks as well, you think about your audience. You have to think of your audience. I, I wouldn't deliver the same paper I delivered today, perhaps. I would think about the audience, you know, and that's hard when, you know, you've not got much time and you want to recycle or what have you, but you always have to think about the audience, you know, and... I'm going to ask a question myself now. It's, uh, it's, it's, of course, it's a food-related question, but it has to be asked because in, just in one paper, we had vomiting household objects. We had consumption of tobacco and drinking. We had a witch floating around on a sieve, presumably to do with winnowing. 
and there was a cabbage, which is very, that was very intriguing. So obviously people are fascinated because they can relate to this because these are everyday things that everybody understands. So in what way do this sort of this everyday food and drink and household objects, what kinds of stories can they help to tell about gender and women in that in that period? Well, I mean, I had to write a wee piece and it was kind of a creative piece for um, a book called Stained Cloth. And it was thinking about clothes and, and, and Naomi Gee, which try on. It was only a short piece, but when I looked at it from that, you know, um, viewpoint, it did, you know, open my eyes because, you know, the, these women were tracked down not only by their facial features, but by their clothes and the colour of their clothes and what we're wearing and what we're wearing at the time. And so, you know, material culture is very important and the stuff that the demonic presence in the house attacks is stuff that people invest emotionally in. So what you have here is people, you know, they're, they're de uh, destroying, you know, riding cloaks and bonnets and uh, not in really expensive cravats and, and, and putting bed clothes in the fire, really expensive stuff that, that relate to, you know, um, people's, you know, um, place in society. And, you know, the, 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 the food aspect of it, you know, thinking about that as well, I mean, the cabbage is there and the food stuffs, you know, it comes from creative imagination because the myth that even Yeats talked about was one of the witches, two of them only have, you know, um, are partially sighted. So the myth is that one of them loses an eye by the cabbage stock that's thrown at them, you know, and, and this is based on local folklore rather than anything you can find at the time, you know. But the the, the actual, the pillory becomes more, you know, real when you think about the humiliation of the, the women. And they are, who might not have, you know, you know, have been in a public space very much before the trial, and then suddenly they're being, you know, pelted by foodstuffs, you know, and maybe foodstuffs that they can't afford. <laughs> and so there's a whole load of things you you know you could go into with just the food that's involved, you know. Yeah, because so, even yeah. though the, the cabbage is such a powerful symbol in all kinds of very modern art, isn't it? It's a sexual symbol and a symbol of luxury. So the fact that they're throwing a cabbage probably isn't just because it's what they had to hand. It might be to do with popular beliefs around those things and. That's how you that. other food. Yeah, it's great. You could once you start you. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. It's great. Yeah, I, think it's really, I don't know. I, I I just yeah. It's like opening Pandora's box, isn't it? Really? <laughs> 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 and there was one. Um, yeah. So um, Shannon Spence, because I'm sure this is a good. You probably want to tell us this, but where can people get tickets or a Zoom link for the launch on the 31st? Oh, uh, it's. Um, Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, demonised the Elm McGee witches. Just Google it. Um, hold on. Um, I don't know. I'm not sharing my screen anymore, but um, we can Google it. Andrew yeah. on Twitter and you can message me or, you know, you can find my, my email for the university email online and I can direct you to it if you can't find it. That's brilliant. I think that's all the that's all the questions unless anyone else yeah that seems to be all that that was absolutely fascinating Andrew and just uh really exciting in terms of the possibilities for for impact and for engaging with other disciplines for for that as well and seeing how that develops and I guess if you could just I suppose one one final question but if you were to do this from scratch and you had a, a new project and you were bidding for 
for funds and designing a research project. How, in what way would you factor this in now if you were to think about it at the start of the of the process rather than coming up with opportunities as you go along? Well, I mean, we did apply for money on, on you know, to, you know, and, and, and really we got some of it. We didn't get all of it, you know, and so, you know, it's finding ways to do it as you go along as well, you know. Mm. And so what you would probably do is do it all at once. You would do mm. the historical research and then you would do, you know, the, the, the impact and, and you would have it, you know, um, focused on that you know and, and you would do it that way you'd probably do it together rather than stretching out and as you as I suggested it's in and out of other you know uh, research interests and things you know so you would you would conceive it as one I think you know and you, you would do it in a big project perhaps. yeah build it in at the start yeah that's good okay brilliant well thank you again that was really really interesting and um definitely going to try the video game <laughs> <laughs> all in the name, all in the name of research, of course. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Read comics, watch films, <laughs> and just um, just uh, before we say goodbye to Andrew, just to remind everyone that Cloda, Cloda Tate um, from Mary Immaculate College Limerick is speaking next week. So I think following on the the, the theme of the dark arts, um, <laughs> the, the topic is the maid, the mayor, the bishop, and a ghost. Uh, the ghost uh, a core haunting on the eve of the war of the two kings so that should be really uh, really very interesting as well and we look forward to welcoming Cloda um next week so and um, thanks again andrew i love to see you and we look forward to the launch thanks very much bye that everyone everybody. manuscript book and print cultures stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the time of the year library as well as being heard the hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.